in the fall of 2019, the Lord gave uh, me uh, a scripture for our church body. And it was Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Shall it not spring forth? Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, that was August of 2019. My wife had passed away just like a month before that. I was still just hardly had footing under me. I mean, I, I was just walking in a really difficult, hard time. And for the Lord to give me a verse for the church was almost surreal. I remember sitting there at my desk when it happened and just thinking, Lord, I don't feel like I can be a vessel that you can use right now. And God just really got hold of my heart and sort of rebuked me and said, yes, you are. You are the vessel, and I will use you right now. And um, that verse, when it was given to me, God said there will be new roads, new ways of getting from point A to point B in the body of Christ. Now, we had no clue at that time how demanding or polarizing those new roads would be for people, how much dissonance would be created in the body of Christ by those new roads. New rivers, what did that mean? And I, I just sat there with the Bible open to that verse, and I felt the Lord direct me that those new rivers were new resources for us, new sources of solutions, new people doing things in a new way. And we had no clue of how much that would be an absolute necessity in 2020. We didn't know COVID-19 was coming in August of last year. We had no clue about it. And so this whole thing of new, new roads and new rivers and the way I was interpreting it, I had no idea the difficulty it would be as those things came into play. It's a risky time. Um, but I've noticed as I read history, the history of the church, especially, that times when God moves are almost always risky times. It is almost always that way. And uh, today I want to look with you in Acts chapter 22 because Paul there is describing how God is doing and has done a new thing and how he had become a significant part in that new thing that God was doing. He's facing a violent mob at the time. But God used him to, to build his case there standing before them that's recorded in Scripture that God was doing something very different. And he was part of that. And the points he made should get our attention. Because God's new things often have many of the same ingredients in them. Um, 
some of the normal ingredients of God's new things are things like pain, <laughs> things like division, things like separation, things like controversy. I marked another verse that occurred to me this morning as I was thinking about that in 1 Corinthians eleven, nineteen, 19, where Paul said, for there must also be factions. Um, the NIV says offenses among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Hmm. This is what the commentary says after that. It says, here Paul stated that the only good that can come out of false brethren is the evident goodness of the true brethren. Interesting, huh? So he says, there are going to be schisms. There are going to be offenses in the church. There are going to be difficult times. There are going to be risky times. And what I'm going to do during those times is a separation. I think that's very true of today. It's a time, and the pastors I meet with regularly on Wednesday morning have been meeting with them for over 20 years. We all agree it's a day of separation. It's a day when God is really separating the hearts of people. Um, and I think that's happening today in the crisis of this epidemic. And I hope we can be like the sons of Issachar in... 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says two things about them. It says they had understanding of the times they were in. They understood the times they were in. And secondly, they knew what Israel ought to do. We could say the church in place of Israel. They had understanding of what the church ought to do. We need leaders today and pastors today and leaders in the church today who understand the times that we're in, that they are risky times when these are times of, of schism and offense and controversy. But also, we need to have leaders and pastors and people who are strong in the church who know what we ought to do. And that is be steadfast, movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I'm quoting there from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So I want to unpack some of Paul's words here, what he is saying, and how God had launched him into this, um, I guess I'll call it a new wave of the kingdom of God and what God was doing. So these are, I, I put in the heading, uh, they're new old things. <laughs> they're, they're things that, are, that God is doing today, and we would say he's doing a new thing, but they're also things that go all the way back to Paul's day. So they're new old things. The first thing that I saw as I read this from Paul, well, I'll just read it in verse 4. It says, he said, I persecuted this way, in other words, the church, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. He was honest about his own track record. He was honest about himself. He didn't he didn't uh, give a bunch of excuses and say, well, but you know, I didn't understand at that time, and I was really good in my heart. You know, those are the kind of things we often say about ourselves. We say, well, you know, yeah, I did that, but you know, I, I really was, I really had a good heart for the Lord, and I really, da, da, da. you know, we tend to round the corners a lot. Paul just didn't do that. 
He said, I was, I was a murderer. I pursued them unto death, and I bind, bound them, I delivered them to prisons. Men and women, I did it. I did it. It kind of reminds me of, I've, I've mentioned this before, the T-shirt that says, the older I get, the better I used to be. I think a lot of us can talk about how good we used to be, and we kind of round the corners of it instead of saying, like Paul, I was a mess. You know, I often refer to when I was, but any time between 18 and 20 of my life was my stupid season. I, I call it my stupid years. It was just, I think I, I crowded everything I could into that was stupid into those few years right there between 18 and 20. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, did, I really remained a Christian, but I did a lot of stupid Christian things, you know, like, oh well. Um, so I don't round the corners on that. It was a bad season in my life. Paul said he'd been a terrorist. He'd been a murderer. One of the things I see today, one of the hallmarks that I see that God is doing in this new thing that he's doing is that he's teaching us to value the honesty. Now, now listen to this. The value, to value the honesty that previous generations have feared. I think growing up, just seeing pastors on the platform, I, I think I thought they wore suits and shoes to bed. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even imagine a pastor in his pajamas. Somebody came to our house recently. I don't remember who it was. I think it was Denise who came over and brought her dogs back. They were, had run away, and she brought them back to the door. And so I'm there in my sleeping shorts and my sleeveless shirt. I think I'd just get, gotten off the elliptical and was probably sweaty, and, and so just before I answered the door, and I looked through the people, and I saw it was Denise, who's our neighbor, and she's sitting right back here, and uh, so, and, and there was this moment of, <laughs> I'm a pastor, and I just opened the door, <laughs> because that's, that's the reality, and so in the past, people so feared, you know, if I'm working on a job, and I'm in my work clothes, and I need to go to Home Depot to, to get something to complete the job. I'm not going to stop and put my nice business casual on so I can go to Home Depot and get a bolt or a screw or something. I'm going to show up in my baseball cap and just like I'm working on that job. Now, that's not to prove anything. That's just to show you the freedom that God has given us today in that new reality that we don't have to wear our suit and our shiny shoes to bed at night. There's a reality there and a, a, an honesty that I think previous generations feared. I'm not suggesting, by the way, we pour out every thought in our mind. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm just going to tell you everything I feel. Kind of like the guy that came to me <laughs> in, in Illinois when we pastored there, and he said, came up to me after a service, said, you know, I just want you to know that I haven't liked you for five years. I haven't liked your preaching for five years either. And, but he said, this morning was really good. <laughs> and I, I could have just done without that, you know. He didn't, he didn't really have to tell me that. <laughs> I was not helped by knowing that he had sat there for five years and hadn't liked me and hadn't liked my teaching for five years. But God is raising up a generation 
that is unimpressed with the, I guess, the TV persona, the, uh, the plastic surgery smile, um, enough makeup to cover up our humanity, sort of. My new mantra is, <laughs> with, with Judy, is let's get wrinkled together. <laughs> okay? Let's all get wrinkled together. When I worked at uh, Christ for the Nations, um, part of my job as a director of public relations was that I would represent Christ for the Nations at an event in, um, at that time it was in New York, no, it was in Washington, D.C., and it was called uh, National Religious Broadcasters. It's, uh, it's the gathering of, of all of the uh, of people who do television ministry or radio ministry, and they're at National Religious Broadcasters because it was several days that the event took place. Uh, you might see many uh, well-known, very popular uh, TV ministry leaders or 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 evangelists in the hallways uh, between sessions. They, they would just be around. You'd, you'd pass them in the hallways chatting with someone or see them eating at a table and whatever. It was, um, they were just kind of all over the place. What amazed me was the fact that some of them, quite a, quite a number of them, wore their television makeup all day long every day. All day long, every day, the, the TV makeup that almost makes you look like a, a doll, you know. And uh, they looked more like that. Do, do you remember the Joker from the original Batman movie? I mean, it's kind of scary. Here, here's, show us a picture of the Joker. From, okay, that's, that's the Joker. from That's uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker in the original Batman movie. And... And sometimes I would see them in the hallways, and they almost looked like the Joker. And it was just, it was a little bit scary to me. I mean, it was just kind of like I couldn't believe it. That day's gone, as it should be, as it should be. And except for, like, Hollywood and some other pockets of where that might be a popular thing, reality rules today. Reality rules um, I see that very clearly. The day of, of, of masquerading as somebody that I'm not is no longer the norm in the church. It's no longer the, it's no longer the way you're supposed to be. Now, I, I, I want to, I want to give a little credit here in a direction that we older folks seldom give, and that is I want to give some credit to the millennial generation right here because they have been a big part of what has been happening in these last several years. Primarily, it isn't that they don't hate, uh, I, I should, let me turn this sentence around. Primarily, they don't hate older folks. They hate phoniness. It's not really whether you're an older person or a younger person. <clears throat> See, Marceline, who became a member this morning, she is youthful. She has youthfulness in her whole persona, the way she thinks, the way she communicates. Judy and I have had her in our home. 
we, I've seen this lady in a lot of different circumstances in her home. And she is youthful. Youthfulness is not your age. It's not gray hair. It's not wrinkled skin. It's in your mind, in your soul. It's the oldness that can come into our soul. And I thank God for the millennials who hate that kind of phoniness that wants to cover everything that we are with inch-deep makeup. See, what happened with Paul was, in verse 6, God shined the light. God shined the light. I mean, there was a light that shined there. And it said, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near to Damascus about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. I mean, this was at noon when the sun was at its peak. And yet he said, This was brighter than the sun. God shines his light on places in us. The spirit of man within us shines a light on the things within us that need to be brought into reconciliation with God's heart. God will do that. And when we respond to that light shining within us and say, I'm the man. I'm the man. Like Nathan said of David, you're the, you're the one. And David had to respond to that, that he was the one that had sinned with Bathsheba. We say, I'm the man. Then the shame can disappear and the guilt can be gone. It's a good way to live. And it's part of what God is calling us to today. He really is. I'm, I'm convinced that. I see it clearly. The second thing I saw in Paul's words there was that he saw how central the church was to God's heart. Notice this. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul said he had gone from place to place persecuting the church. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Me, that's my heart. I hope it doesn't sound disrespectful for me to say it this way. God's a church guy. God is a church guy. He is on board with church, real church, the way real church is supposed to be. God is the designer of that. Jesus said, I will build my church. I think you're aware that in our day, people are dropping out of church um, in an unprecedented way. They are dropping out of a church identity and adopting an individual identity, which can be self-created, self-defined, self-serving, and unaccountable. I don't need other people around me. I'll just be who I am because I can, I can handle it there. I can be self-created. I can brand myself. I can be self-defined. I can be self-serving. I can be unaccountable. I don't need anybody else. I heard an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago with um, one of the individuals in the CHOP zone in, in Seattle. 
Um, he was obviously very anti-police, very anti-government, um, anti-rules, and, and he expressed that freely to the lady who was interviewing him. And he was making a point that what they were standing for in the CHOP zone, I think that was Capitol Hill Occupied Project, I think is what that stood for. Um, what he was standing for was the truth. And that other people didn't have the truth, but they were, they were presenting the truth there. And the interviewer said, um, if you had a child, then what would you tell that child is the truth? And this guy said, I would tell him that I am the truth. And that all he has to do is watch me and do what I do because I am the truth. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that kind of self-declaration that says, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to do it my way. I don't need church. <clears throat> That's the world's way of looking at it. I am the truth. Just do what I do. God so loved the church that he says, when you are out of alignment with the church, you're out of alignment with Jesus. He identifies the church with Jesus. When you're not right with the church, you're not right with Jesus. Wow. I think, uh, I think I'm getting a little into commentary here, so it's worth just what you're paying for it. I think that a combination of sort of a wheels off social media and an educational system that has become completely overrun as far as I can tell with an anti-God agenda has created an atmosphere in which it's popular to defy God's will and God's way, make light of the church. And honor those who dishonor the Lord. In the Old Testament, when God judged his people, the condition that they were in in the book of Judges is defined this way. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. It says that repeatedly in the book of Judges. We're talking about the judgment of the Lord. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I'm going to make up my own rules. Don't fence me in. Don't tell me what to do. I'm, I'm doing my own thing. That is the condition of our day. I, I really believe that. It's the condition of our day. And it is frightening to my heart because it precipitates the judgment of the Lord. I am telling you, it precipitates the judgment of the Lord. Every man doing what's right in his own eyes. I'm going to share something very carefully with you right now. So just kind of bear with me here. There is a, there is a carnal mercy that I see on display today that masquerades as the truth. And it's a carnal mercy. Listen to Luke 1.50. Luke 1.50 says, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. I want you to notice in that verse the connection between mercy and fearing the Lord. His mercy is on those who 
fear him. The so-called mercy that I'm talking about today displayed has no fear of God in it. It has no fear of God in it. You see, this is, this is something else that happens when we push real church. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about real church. When we push real church aside and start saying, I'm just going to make up my own rules. I'm going to decide how I want to live. Nobody's going to stop me from doing exactly what I want to do. We begin to define mercy and love then by condoning anything that feels right with the individual. If it feels right to you, then, oh, mercy and love. It's all mercy and love. And I'm going to say something very, very clear to you right now. We can love people in that way right into hell. We can love people in that way right into hell and say it's mercy and love all the way. People say, well, how can you say that people are leaving the church because there's so many big churches? There are. Uh, the Barna Group, uh, I've, I've got quite a bit of research, and you can find it. Just Google it real easy. Uh, the Barna Group has done a lot of research on this, and they're very, very conclusive, and they're very good and accurate. And they said big churches are still big churches and even growing, but there are fewer Christians who are following the basic, the most basic elements of the Word of God. I mean, the most basic elements, like things like, is God really alive? Um, is His Word really true? Things like that. I'm talking about real basic stuff. The people that believe those things are fewer and fewer. Mercy and love are being defined as license and selfishness. It's what I want. It's the way I like it. It's my truth. It's not your truth. I don't care. It's an unsanctified kind of mercy that is guided by personal demands and by my personal convenience the way I like it. And I believe America is in much trouble today because she is persecuting, she is coming against a God-honoring church. I see it in the educational system. I see it with my grandchildren. I see it in the educational system. I see it big time in the media. I see it in, lot of, in a lot of government institutions. And I even see it in what we saw just this last week, the anti-church, anti-worship takeover attempt in California state that I've loved dearly and lived in for a long time. Those things are serious and sad to my heart, but I think it's the truth. I think we're in trouble because of that. God's church and God's heart are together. Together. 
When we're out of line with God, we get out of line with his church. Again, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about the real church of Jesus Christ. Number three, the last one. When God does a new thing, never discount the value of how you can be his vessel of choice. Hmm. Look at Acts 22, 10 through 14 with me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, this is Paul speaking, Saul at that time, go into Damascus and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. I think Ananias represents our call to be an individual witness of the Lord. Now again, that's not a new thought, but God is reinforcing that in his church and among his people. I can tell you, I'm with a lot of pastors. I'm with 12 to 15, sometimes 18 pastors every week. And so I hear, this is not the only group I hear from. I hear from the larger church. And I know God is reinforcing that individuality of witness in the church of Jesus Christ. Just saying, this is my assignment for you today. It's that person. And we need to be obedient to that and, and not shuck and duck. Be obedient to that call. I think Ananias represents that. Notice, first of all, he was just a faithful and obedient man. It just says he was devout according to the law. Nothing fancy here. It doesn't say he was a gifted man. It doesn't say he was a great singer. It doesn't say he was really a good speaker. It doesn't say he was really smart and had a degree. It doesn't say any of those things about Ananias. He was just a faithful and obedient man. That's what God looks for, faithful and obedient people. And the other thing was, it said he had a good reputation among the people there in his community. He was respected by others. He wasn't a one-man show. He wasn't a loaded cannon uh, going around who was in love with his own voice. He wasn't the legend in his own mind, as Clint Eastwood said in Dirty Harry. He wasn't that. He was not all about himself. He was not about all his own branding and his own... Uh, decisiveness. He had a solid reputation among the people. That's what church is all about. Have other people. And then I love this. It says he came and stood next to Paul who was known as a terrorist. Known as a terrorist. And he didn't keep himself at a distance from, from Saul as if he had a better social standing than Paul had. He identified with it. Did you notice it said his first words were, Brother Saul. He drew close to him. Um, a book that I'm presently reading, I mentioned it last Sunday, a book called This Precarious Moment, written by two guys that I really, really appreciate so much. And I've followed them for many years. Jim Garlow and David Barton wrote 
this precarious moment. And um, one of the first issues they deal with in this book, in the, in the first segment of it, is racism. And uh, I want to just read you it, this portion they're talking about improving relations between cultures and races. And um, they said this, a starting point has been suggested by two U.S. senators, James Lankford, a white senator from Oklahoma, and Tim Scott, a black senator from South Carolina. They recommend what they call Solution Sundays. Solution Sundays. This is it. Americans do not really get to know their neighbors and fellow citizens at a rally or a big event. We get to know each other typically over a meal, especially in our home. What if Americans intentionally chose to put our prejudice and broken trust on the table by putting our feet under the same table? If it seems too simple and obvious, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had dinner in your home with a person of another race? Many Americans have not. Sunday is a slower yet significant day for most Americans. So we challenge each family to give one Sunday lunch or dinner for building relationships across race to literally be part of the solution in America. Obviously, any day of the week works since the goal is to engage on a personal, personal level of your own home to break down walls and build trust across our communities. It's harder to stereotype when you know people firsthand. Isn't that true? It's hard to stereotype when you know people firsthand. The simple act, this simple act might not wipe out all racism and tension between races, but it will surely help decrease it. By the way, if you are not used to entertaining people in your home, then how about a restaurant? But regardless of the location, building trust relationships is the key. Isn't that sweet? When I read that, I just thought, what a, what a good, simple, powerful idea. What a simple, good, powerful idea. It's something anybody can do. Anybody can do that. And then they go on with how we speak. They, they go on with the example of thoughtfulness in speaking. And I'll read you a little quick excerpt from that section. When generational hurts are raised by blacks, they should not be dismissed with patronizing statements such as, those complaining about racism today were never slaves. It's been over 150 years. They need to get over it. Such comments demonstrate a lack of awareness of the phenomenon the Bible identifies as generational forces that can pass down trauma from one generation to the next. Generational forces that can pass down trauma from one generation to the next. And um, I remembered Lamentations 5, verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. It gets passed along. We bear their iniquities. And then they talk about listening. Um, last Sunday, Judy and I had uh, lunch with uh, a a few, in fact, uh, two are here right now, and um, we so enjoyed it. And and one of the one of the ones with us was Gabby, Annette's friend, who's a Latina, 
Uh, I think she lives in Houston. Gabby does. I've known her for quite a number of years, actually. And uh, she's a very well-educated, um, very fine young Latina woman. And so somehow we just began to weave into the conversation some things that go on on the job today. And she began to open up in a way that I had never heard her before. I had no idea of the bullying and the race baiting that she had experienced on the job and how brave she had had to be on her jobs. How absolutely courageous she'd had to be. I was amazed by it. I was saddened by it. Here's this very beautiful young Latina woman, speaks perfect English, is bilingual, and yet she has been persecuted on the job in a way that it was hard for Judy and I to believe. We just thought, how can this be? How can this be? But we just listened, and I learned a lot there at my table. We need to take time to ask questions and listen without, please take this gently, but without blurting out our cookie-cutter solutions for everything. We tend to do that. We tend to have my little cookie-cutter solution my little overly simplistic solution to your situation. Well, if you just do this, if you just do this. It's like people who say, oh, if you're sick, you need to just fast and pray for three days. That'll take care of it. And, and many of us have just done that because it was a cookie-cutter solution and it didn't work for us. Like Ananiah, let's, let's, let's stand beside those who are struggling. Let's stand beside those who are seeking solutions. And lastly, I want to be at, like Ananias as he ministered to Paul's personal need. Personal need. He said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Here's what I'm saying to us today. Let's not draw back from ministering to the personal need of individuals whom we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. It might be in Walmart. It might be when you get gas. It might, it, it might be when you pick up your cleaning. Uh, it might be the person next door. They're mowing your, their lawn. You're mowing your lawn at the same time. Be sensitive to those personal needs. Don't be afraid to pray with others regardless of whether or not they are a Christian regardless of their size of their need. Paul's need was great. He was, he was, at that time, he was blind. He couldn't see. That was his first and immediate need. And Ananias responded to that. He just ministered to him. He said, Brother, Paul, receive, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Here's the thing I always do. Just ask if you can pray with someone. And I find very few people decline that. Very few people decline the offer of a prayer. In this, in this hour of confusion, in this hour of fear, I cannot overstate to you how important a simple, sincere, heartfelt prayer can be. Let's let the Lord use us in those things. Those are some new old things that God's doing. 
but he's really reinforcing it in this day. You're needed more than ever in the kingdom. And I hope that I've, I've mentioned the outreaches to several recently, the, uh, the outreaches to the firemen, the outreaches to International Street Church on First Fridays. Those are things that come up regularly. Uh, the outreach to Planned Parenthood, the children being there. There are a number of outreaches that we're involved in that you can plug right into and be part of if the Lord leads you that way. I don't want you to just do it because I said to do it, but I want you to do it. If God's opening your heart in those areas, let the Lord use you. Let the Lord use you to just pray with somebody or to ask someone to lunch at those two, as those two senators suggested. Just have somebody that's of a different race, of a different, of a different nationality, and you're at your table and just hear their heart. It makes a difference. It makes a difference.